Hello and welcome to Bill Allen's uh, Facebook study. I'm glad to be joining you uh, from West Irwin Church of Christ in the heart of Tyler, Texas, downtown Tyler, where it's unseasonably cool, uh, at least in the evenings. I know it's September and uh, temperatures are going down, that's true, but we've had some very nice uh, mild nights. Uh, but it's going to warm up still in the 90s, uh, at least low 90s this week. Uh, but uh, the nights in the 60s is very refreshing for this time of year in this part of the country. And I hope that you're having a good week. I'm excited about this week of studies in our Facebook Bible studies because as we go through F. Lagarde Smith's The Daily Bible in Chronological Order, we find ourselves in the book of Job spelled like job, J-O-B, but it's Job. And um, it's a very interesting study. If you're keeping up with the chronological readings, then that's where you are. You are uh, deep into the book of Job already and have a few more days still before we're out of it. But I do, uh, I do want us to talk this week and possibly a little bit on next Tuesday about this incredible story and this incredible book. It is one of my favorite books. I tell people that my favorite uh, book is very likely the Gospel of John with Job and Romans right up there, pretty close, Psalms and Acts also up there, very close. But Job is, um, is just an incredible statement. And um, it's, it's one of those books that are great to read, of course, when you're struggling, when you're going through difficult times. Because um, like the rest of the Bible, the book of Job does not deny that suffering exists. And it also does not deny that there is a bit of tension between uh, being in a relationship with an all-powerful God and seeing that all-powerful God not doing much to help you in your circumstances. That's a very tragic thing. And the book of Job addresses that. It doesn't, um, it, it doesn't turn it away. It doesn't uh, deny it, uh, but it also doesn't give up on the God who is present, even when we can't really quite understand him. As we read through the book of Job, we uh, read uh, uh, there's some things that we get, some things that we don't get. If you're following with uh, F. Lagarde Smith and his commentary or his comments on uh, this section. He says, we don't know when the book of Job was actually put to paper, but we do know that it seems that uh, it took place during the patriarchal age, as we call it. Job could have been a contemporary of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. That's about the situation that he lived in and his friends lived in. When it was put down on paper is a whole nother thing. That story was passed along orally as much of the Old Testament was at first, and, and probably some of the New Testament. But uh, with the story of Job, it seems to be appropriate. I like where he puts it, which is during this time of the exile, when the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem has been destroyed, and now a lot of the Israelites, the vast majority, are, have either died or they are in Babylon in exile. And so this is a great time to discuss suffering and where is God when I'm struggling and how can God be acting or maybe even not acting when I think that uh, things should be different. So uh, the book of Job is a great story. I believe Job is a real person. I believe he actually lived. I believe all these things actually happened to him. I don't think it's just a, an allegory. I think it's a real story. It certainly presents itself that way. 
and it's uh, it's a book that is offers great encouragement to the sufferer and the struggler. And there's a difference between it offering great encouragement and it's offering answers. Job doesn't, the book of Job really doesn't answer a lot of the questions. Job himself asks a lot of the questions and God comes along finally, but he doesn't give him any answers. Instead, he just hits him with more questions, questions that Job has no idea about how to answer. So um, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 1, and we'll read a little bit, and then we'll see how far we get. I do want us to uh, take a look at this first part, because really, there's three different sections in the book. This first section is where God and Satan are up in heaven, and they're arguing over Job. And Job, uh, uh, unfortunately, pays the price for all of that and incurs very much loss. And then starting in chapter 3, we read a bunch of speeches, speeches from Job, speeches from his friends, speeches from a man by the name of Elihu who comes along. And then uh, God responds with not really speeches, but questions. And, uh, and then finally, the last part of the book uh, is, uh, as Paul Harvey might say, the rest of the story. Job is uh, able to see some things change in his life this time for the better. So starting in Job 1, verse 1, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Just exactly how upright and righteous was he? Even God says that in just a few moments. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned a lot of livestock, a lot of property. He was a very wealthy man, but also a very righteous man. And the end of verse 3 says, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes, and on their birthdays they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, this is how righteous Job was, um, how conscientious he was, Job would make arrangements for his children to be purified. Early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned, and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So then verse 6, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, the adversary, also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. It's interesting to me that it's God who brings up Job. And again, for some, that might give a lot of problems as to why in the world a righteous and merciful God would do that. Well, I think it's because God had some plans for Job, plans for his ultimate good and his ultimate growth that go far beyond his physical existence and the, the current present condition. It's hard for us to understand, but remember, God sees all. Um, and so God says in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? No one like him in all the earth. Verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand 
and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So verse 9, I believe, is the theme text, the theme statement, the big question in the book of Job. And it is offered by Satan, the adversary, himself. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan asks. In other words, does does Job not get stuff out of fearing you? God says there's no one as upright as he in all the earth. And Satan says, well, of course. You've given him everything in the world a person could ask for. He's got good health. He's got a good family. <clears throat> He's very rich and wealthy. He's got lots of livestock and stuff and land and property. He's well respected in the city. What more could he ask for? And so Satan says, you've built a hedge around him. Interestingly enough, Job himself is going to use that same language uh, later on in his sufferings, that God has put a hedge around him and has caused him to suffer. Um, and here, Satan says, you've put a hedge around him. You've got this protective barrier to keep him safe from all kinds of suffering. You take that barrier away. You cause him to experience loss and he'll curse you to your face. That is the question in the book of Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? And that is a question in your life and mine also. Do we fear God for nothing? In other words, would we, would we worship and reverence and serve the living God simply because he is the living God? Or do we follow him and serve him and obey him simply because he protects us? He blesses us. He gives us stuff. He keeps the bad stuff away. If you took all of those things out, would we still serve God? That really is the question of the book of Job. And so the Lord says to Satan, okay, you're on. <laughs> uh, you can do whatever you want to him, but you cannot touch him himself. And so I think it's interesting, again, it, it's a good reminder to us that even though Satan has a lot of power and sway over the things that happen in Job's life, it is still God who sets the limits. It is still God who is in control. Now, uh, that may or may not help us much because if God is so much in control, why does he let this happen in the first place? And I think we don't find the answer to that until at the end, after God appears to Job. But in the meantime... God tells Satan, okay, you can have your way with him, but you can't touch him. You can't lay a finger on him. And so Satan leaves, and then Job experiences all of this loss. Here in chapter 1, his livestock are killed, his servants are killed, and then all of his children are killed. And we read through those things, and we think, oh, well, that's no big deal, but it's a huge deal. It's, it's written matter-of-factly, like much of the Bible is, but remember what... Consider what it's like to lose a child, or consider what it's like to lose all of your children. Some of you that are listening to this have experienced that, that loss, that unnatural loss. It's not the way of the world. It's not the way things are supposed to go. And yet, that's what happens with Job. And it's not a little thing at all. How will Job respond? Um, well, that's where we get to chapter 1, verse 20. 
chapter 1, verse 20, At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Uh, this, these great verses here that I just read are some of the inspiration for that great contemporary Christian song, Blessed Be Your Name. Blessed be your name. You know that song? It is such a great and powerful and moving song. I love it so much. It's, it's fast, and, um, and, and it speaks about this. It speaks about how the Lord's name is to be blessed, whether things are going well or things are going not well. And right now, things are going not well. And Job says, hey, I, I didn't have anything when I came into this world. It looks like I'm not going to have anything when I leave it. But blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And it's interesting that that's how it's put here, because that's not how it's put after the second round. The second round starts in chapter 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. So far, about the same. Chapter 2, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And if I'm Job right now, I'm thinking, No, 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 don't. Don't bring me up again. Why did you even do it the first time? <laughs> verse 3 of chapter 2. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him still. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without reason. God tells Satan, hey, he's still a great man. He's still a righteous man, even though you incited me against him. Obviously, God can do whatever God wants, and the reason he did all that is because I believe it was going to be better for Job in the long run, but not in the short run. In the short run, it was horrible. Where was God when all of those horrible things were happening? Well, Satan is not done yet. He hasn't given up. And so chapter 2, verse 4, Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Very well, then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So once again, God allows Satan to have a lot of power over Job in a particular way, but still God sets the limits. Still God is in control. Still God sets the boundary. And that boundary is you can't take his life. You can touch him, and Satan does, and he puts all kinds of sores on him, and then he puts his wife uh, against him, and then he brings in his friends. But God has told Satan, okay, here's, here's the line. You can't take his life, which is really amazing because as the book unfolds, and we'll see it in just a few moments in chapter 3, Job cries out to God, why, why do you let me live? Why did you let me be born? Why do you not just finish the task he's going to say in his speeches ahead? 
verse 7 of chapter 2. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. This was Job in mourning, uh, dealing with these sores um, and mourning in the custom of the Jews. Verse 9, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. <laughs> Thanks for the encouragement. You're supposed to be my my, the one person that will be on my side, you're supposed to be the one person that will help me instead. She says, give it up, man. Just curse God and die. Just admit that you're a sinner, that you're horrible, that you deserve all this that's happening to you. Curse God for it and then let him take you. And Job's response to her in verse 10, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said, the end of chapter 2, verse 10. So Job says the right things here. He tells his wife, look, should we accept good from God and not trouble? It's a human experience. We get it. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And that's a pretty good indication that what's going on inside of him is not all that good. And as we read in his speeches, we're going to see exactly that. And then Job's three friends come along. <laughs> you got to love these guys. Uh, these guys are something else. If you want to know how not to do hospital ministry, read Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar in the book of Job. They say all the wrong things. They do. I believe that they do. And let me, this is a good time for me to tell you that a lot of, uh, uh, almost all of my understanding from the book of Job about the book of Job comes from the wonderful Dr. John Willis of Abilene Christian University years ago, great Old Testament professor, uh, wrote books on the wisdom and devotional literature of the Old Testament, as well as the prophets and other things. And Job is considered a wisdom literature out of the Old Testament, uh, similar to Ecclesiastes or Psalms. It's a long poem in a sense, you could say that, not a rhyming poem, but it's a story, a story about a man and his sufferings and his questioning of God in the midst of that suffering and how that holds up. Um, and so Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar come on the scene and they're so struck by what they find when they see their friend Job, they weep aloud, they tore their robes, they sprinkled dust on their heads, verse 12. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, the last verse, they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Well, Job is going to come along in chapter 3 and he's going to say, you know, you guys aren't any help so far. And then they're going to open their mouths and they're going to make things worse, actually make things worse. But before we read the speeches of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, um, listen to what Job says. I believe that the power in the book of Job is in the speeches of Job because Job as an honest struggler uh, lays it all out there, much like some of the Psalms that are very honest and open with God when they don't understand, when they cry out, where are you, Lord? My enemies are laughing and scoffing at me. Even the great Psalm 22, 
that Jesus remembered from the cross that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the rest of that psalm talks about the suffering of that psalmist and looks ahead to the suffering of the Savior in a very special way. Job does the same thing. In his speeches, Job is very honest. In the speeches of his friends, not so much. And at the end, Job is commended for his honesty and his unwillingness to deny the reality of what he saw and how he felt. Our God is big enough to handle that. Our God is big enough to handle what Job is going to say in chapter 3. And let's read a bit of it because it is strong. And as we read this, I want you to think, how would I react and respond if I went to see a friend of mine who had just lost a loved one or lost their job or lost their marriage or had been told by the doctor that it's terminal, there's no cure, whatever the situation, how would you respond if your friend talked like this? Job chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, and he's talking about the night of his birth. When the doctor came out and says, great news, you have a healthy boy to his father. Verse 6, that night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year. We long for our birthdays every year. Job says, let's take our calendars and rip that day out. Verse 7, may that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, that beast of the sea. Verse 9, may its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Verse 11, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be dead, he says. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins. With princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. One of the things about the wisdom literature is that it acknowledges death is a reality whether you're rich or poor, whether you're great or small, a peasant or a king. Job says, I would be lying in the grave dead with those if I had never been born or if I had been stillborn. Verse 16, why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? Why didn't they just kill me after I was born? There the wicked cease from turmoil and there the weary are at rest. And he was weary and had no rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure. That's how Job felt, longing for death. And yet it was God who had put the limit on Satan to keep Job alive. 
That's a big, huge question. Verse 22, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? And that's how Job saw it. Remember, we heard Satan say, hey, of course Job serves you. I mean, you built a hedge around him. Now Job says that it is God who has hedged him in, and he cannot escape from his suffering. Even death eludes him. Verse 24, for sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Job says, I, I, I just knew this was too good to be true. What I feared has happened. I was afraid this would happen, that one day I, I've been so blessed in all my life, and then one day all the blessing would be taken away. And that day is today. Job can't believe it. Can't believe it. And in the speeches ahead, he's really going to take God to task. And so as you read through these speeches this week, notice Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Listen to what they say. They say things like, why do you argue with God? Um, Job, you know that the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. You're suffering, so do the math, Job. You're wicked. Admit it. And Job could not bring himself to do it. He did not understand this. Um, Bildad comes along and tells him, just be sensible. How can you, how can you be sensible when you're experiencing such suffering? Uh, Zophar comes along and says, look, you're not even getting the half of what your sins deserve. And they say the same thing about his children who were killed. Horrible, terrible things that don't comfort at all, and Job will ultimately call them out on it. Well, we'll look at some of those things on Thursday and hear from some of the things that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar say, and then take this look at an honest struggler, an honest sufferer, the man Job himself, and how he questions God how he calls God to meet him on even ground so that he could debate him. And Job says, like a prince, I would approach him. Yes, we understand Job's patience. The New Testament acknowledges that. But we also understand that Job himself would go too far because he himself repents at the end in dust and ashes, knowing that he spoke where he had no business speaking but Job himself is commended by God at the end. His friends are told, go to Job and ask him to pray for you. Because Job accepted the things that were not making sense to him and didn't deny that they didn't make sense, but rather brought those questions to the only one who can hear them, the only one who can give us rest in spite of them. He may not take the questions and the suffering away, we may not get the answers we long for, ever. And will that be okay? Is it enough that God is just God? That he is the Almighty? That he is the eternal Lord and Master? Is that enough for us to worship him and serve him? For he alone is worthy. Or... 
Will we only serve him if he will bless us? Will we only serve him if he will say yes to our prayers? Will we only serve him if we do not suffer? That is really the question of the book of Job. Does Job serve God for nothing? Will I serve God even if there's nothing seemingly in it for me? We'll take this up again on Thursday. I'm looking forward to hearing these crazy, crazy friends of Job and what they have to say. And then especially looking at the speeches that this honest struggler shares, the questions that he gives to his creator. There are questions too. God bless you. I'll see you on Thursday.